Cameron's personal commitment to his so-called big society and enterprise economy isn't in doubt. However, filling in that all-important detail of how we get from A to B and an economy that is less reliant on large bureaucratic organisations to one that is more user-friendly to communities and the planet and small business organisations is problematic. Dr Shai Vaikanam is Director of the Centre for Entrepreneurial Learning at Cambridge Judge Business School. Well, I think social enterprise begins from having a so-called triple bottom line as its essential definition, as I understand it. These are that there should be sustainability to the business. In other words, it needs to make a profit in order to survive year on year. It needs to have an impact on people in the community in some form or other. So it is therefore social in that sense. And finally, something to do with the planet uh, as well, that it is ecologically friendly and sustainable in the longer term by not imposing any tax, if you like, on the, on the impact on the planet. So that's how I understand social enterprise to be. So a social enterprise is more focused and more responsible than perhaps a normal business. It thinks more about the community and less about profit. Yeah, its starting point is more about the community and the planet. And then the profit is, is a mechanism, is a means to an end. Whereas perhaps in some business environments that are you know, part of the stock market and so on, so-called shareholder value, the profit comes first and then the impact on people and planet comes next. So Milton Friedman, who died a while ago, but in his book Capitalism and Freedom, talks about the, you know, the, the fact that the profit is the first and foremost uh, job of the manager, and then it's the shareholders who decide what they do with that money. In this case, in a social enterprise case, those two get combined into a single construct that you have to think both about sustainability of the business itself and the sustainability of the planet and the people. The speed of which the state is being deconstructed and reinvented is notable. Parents are being given powers to run schools, GPs will be able to expand their practices to run parts of the NHS and, it seems, local voters will be picking police commissioners. One local council has already resorted to outsourcing all its public services. But will ordinary people be skilled enough to become entrepreneurs and without the right guidance, might they fail? Dr. Vikarnam again of Cambridge Judge Business School. Yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting uh, what's happening at the moment with the so-called big society. It frankly takes me back to 1979 when Mrs. Thatcher came in. And soon after that, there were massive closures of the coal and steel industries in various other places. And there was a huge growth in enterprise or small businesses. Much encouragement was given through business in the community, Prince's Trust, and so on and so forth. Nobody talked then about social enterprise. They just talked about enterprise, i.e. self-employment, small business, that kind of thing, so that people had a way of uh, eking out a living. That did spawn from middle managers of the larger companies, some good quality businesses that came out of that period, which is probably the backbone of the current interest in entrepreneurship amongst the students that we see on a day-to-day basis. But in the current climate, uh, the difference is that from the first wave, if you like, the Thatcher period, was that there was a level of selfishness and self-centeredness to that period of growth. The growth of the yuppies, the city, uh, you know, exploding in terms of its pay and rewards, and a sense of greed that came part of that. I think the wave now is to say, actually, you know what, we do want to survive and make out a, a, a living for ourselves, but it's got to be socially responsible. 
So I'm not sure if it's social enterprise or just socially responsible enterprise. And would you then say that workers are likely, from those experiences of history and recent history, are likely to have the skills and capabilities and inclinations to set up social enterprises, to re-employ themselves, if you like? Well, this is where I really have a, a challenge because I'm not sure that they do. I don't think the infrastructure has been put in place for them. The um, not-for-profit organisations, the large established ones, which could pick up, mop up, if you like, the services that the public sector no longer want to provide, would have the managerial scalability and so forth to, do, to deliver that. But to expect people who have been employees without necessarily the earlier training that they might have had in management, in entrepreneurship, in business, and how to you know, do a balance sheet, profit and loss accounts, all of that sort of stuff, to suddenly find themselves having to sell their services as opposed to be an employee strikes me as a, as a recipe for disaster. I suspect a lot of these people who get their redundancy pay will go into cockamamie enterprises, buy franchise deals, and we'll see them all on Watchdog on television programs like that, you know, being stitched up and uh, long-faced. So there's a vulnerability of sending people into business, even social enterprises, when they haven't got the skills or experience to run those businesses. Certainly, and I think it's, uh, there's a moral hazard on behalf of um, you know, the public sector not to put vulnerable employees into vulnerable enterprise as opposed to social enterprise. You can't just hijack a term like that uh, for, for some kind of uh, short-term gain of cost savings. What happens to their minimum wage? What happens to holidays? What happens to childcare? What happens to all the things that, that a good employer provides? And that's taken away, and these people are put out on the streets, as it were, and said, you are now a social entrepreneur. A question mark also hangs over the actual operating capacity of charities, social enterprises and private companies to take on these roles and meet the needs of citizens when their own budgets are squeezed. Can they respond to Cameron's poetic rhetoric when their own budgets and futures are in doubt? Dr Vikarnam again. Yeah, I think there are, there are challenges. I think if, if an individual wanted to set something up and was driven by a particular passion, that flips the coin completely the other way. And so rather than being thrown out, if you like, into the darkness of um, underemployment or unemployment, if, on the other hand, people say, actually, you know what, this is a fabulous opportunity for me to grab hold of something and, and do something with it. And it need not just be social enterprise. It could be just enterprise. And let's not forget, social enterprise does have an impact on community and the planet and everything else. We're putting a burden of responsibility on individuals to look after planets and people when they can barely look after themselves and their own families. So first, let us see that we can make them sustainable in their own right. And, you know, there are institutions around, I guess, who will step up to the plate and help them out. But I would hope that we can create an aspiring society first as well, not just a survival mentality. And that needs a general climate of growth rather than adversity. Growth helps a lot. Um, and necessity is the mother of invention. So I could be half right on both counts, actually. Will a slimmed-down public sector be able to reinvent itself as an enterprise economy? And what will the impact on business efficiency be? The biggest changes are happening in health, with doctors taking on managerial responsibilities of the primary care trusts.
Dr. Helen Hoare is Senior Lecturer in Community Enterprise at Cambridge Judge Business School. The, um, the thinking around getting more social enterprises in the NHS was well established in the previous administration and a social enterprise uh, uh, unit was established within the NHS to try and encourage um, employees in the NHS to put together bundles of services that they could deliver through a social enterprise model. So that is well established. But the, um, the view is that the, you know, these services are paid for and are, are funded and it's not, they won't be delivered necessarily by volunteers. Now that infrastructure was supported by funds from, uh, from the NHS and so we th I think we have to be very careful about thinking about how that will be implemented under a big society model because expecting people to know intuitively how to set up a business, how to run a business, how to negotiate contracts is, uh, is unrealistic unless they've had either some previous experience or have got access to expertise in order to be able to enable them to do that. In the United States, Obama has a White House office of social innovation and civic participation, which is being likened to Cameron's vision of a social enterprise economy. So what difference does the actual structure of an organisation make to the organisational goals and efficiency? Does it matter? Dr Hoare again. I think it does matter, and particularly when we look at different social enterprise models, because they are attempting to combine social purpose with a profitable business model. And the, the social enterprise vehicle really assures investors and funders that the money that is um, given to those organizations, either in the form of contracts or donations, is used for the achievement of that social purpose and not used to either pay excessive salaries or uh, to be dispersed for in other sort of profit-sharing modes. So I think that the vehicle is important because it gives assurances not just to employees that they're giving their, they're selling their labour to an organisation that will, is working towards achieving a social purpose, but it gives an indicator to those outside the organisation that that is the case. And it's not to say that those that social enterprises cannot earn a profit, but if they do earn a profit, that profit is used then for the benefit of the organisation in terms of helping to pursue its purpose and not creamed off uh, in things like excessive salaries or perks for um, senior management. So if we take this idea and go back to the idea of cutting public services, having a big society, we've got this bureaucratic, wasteful state that we can all get by, or the nudge theory, on, on much less, and, and we can all provide some of these stuff through our own communities and networks locally. I mean, things like capacity builders... The charitable sector has been trying these concepts out, hasn't it? And it's been trying to bid for these public sector contracts. How have those experiments gone in the past few years? Well, certainly the, um, the previous administration was very uh, supportive of working with organisations in the third sector and created a range of different vehicles for enabling those organisations to bid for contracts. But that enabling was uh, through a, a, system, a set of structures where uh, um, social enterprises could learn how to bid for contracts. Um, now, if you dispense with those intermediaries and just expect social enterprises, community organisations to 
uh, bid for contracts without having that support, then I think you know there are there will be problems, and um, you know there is a role there for providing services to support those organisations in order to secure those contracts, and. Yes, we hear a great deal in the media about wasteful public sector expenditure. And um, I'm sure that the research will show some areas where uh, costs could be cut. But I think we're talking about massive cuts now, which are really going to have a, a significant impact in the future. And, um, and I think that trying to encourage more people to become engaged is, is, is a way of trying to resolve some of those issues. But I think that it's, it's something that needs to be adequately resourced, not just in terms of ensuring that uh, money is available to, 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 for the contracts, but also an advisory function in order to enable uh, community and voluntary organisations and social enterprises to, to bid for these contracts and to deliver the services. Investment in green technologies is seen to be key to our entrepreneurial success in the future. But what conditions will they need to thrive? There are lessons to be learned from looking at what's happening elsewhere in Europe. Dr Michael Pollitt is Assistant Director of the Electricity Policy Research Group at Cambridge Judge Business School. Well, I think that people always point to um, countries like uh, Denmark and Germany and they say, well, those are countries where clearly they have managed to de develop very significant green industries and to export uh, wind turbines, for instance, around the world. Um, I think we need to be very cautious about the, any argument that says that we can emulate those countries because clearly those countries have already developed um, a capability in these industries and as we expand our subsidy to um, uh, green industries it may be that it's companies in those countries which benefit disproportionately from our subsidy rather than stimulating our own local industry so it may already be too late to, uh, to, to stimulate that sort of green industry in the UK. So what would you do? Clearly there is a problem on the horizon. Well, I think that um, uh, you, you clearly we do need to take our climate change targets seriously. And um, it's also clear that um, green um, electricity and green energy more generally is an important part of meeting um, our climate change targets. Um, and I think the key focus for us as um, a country must be keeping the costs of meeting our targets down. And of course, that involves um, having a vibrant um, uh, green sector, which is responding to the subsidies that the government is putting into it. And that's not just about developing new technology or building new wind um, uh, turbines in factories. It's about um, rolling out the new technology as cheaply as possible. It's about new business models um, uh, in the energy sector to encourage people to uh, buy green technology and to reduce energy consumption, to invest in energy efficiency. Um, those things are things very much to be encouraged and may be, it may be possible to encourage those at quite low cost. So are these green technologies likely to pioneer these new business models, such as social enterprise, as communities get together to share energy resources like transport and power 
And what are the benefits of such localism? There are lessons from Europe here too. Dr Pollitt again of Cambridge Judge Business School. One of the very interesting observations from um, some of continental European countries is clearly um, communities have got involved in um, investing in wind turbines and in supporting their um, their, their, their creation through the planning process. And that is a, a clear area where the UK is lagging behind. The UK does not seem to engage local communities in supporting local renewable energy developments for some reason. And there clearly is more that we, we should be able to do there. And that may involve um, setting up um, community interest companies or uh, local uh, shareholder-owned companies where people feel they've got a direct financial stake in the, the wind farm that's going up outside their window. Um, and that may be a way of encouraging people to support these projects through the planning process. So yes, I, I, I do think that that's a, an important area for future development in the UK. And, and just finally, energy also because of the gas pipelines going through Russia, it's become a security issue, hasn't it, as well? So, so there are multiple advantages of, if you like, investing in these green technologies, investing in them locally, and, and perhaps making them more community-oriented. Oh, yes, I, th I think there are lots of co-benefits with um, community projects. Um, clearly, the, there's a co-benefit in building local community and building the social capital of a local community. There may be a co-benefit in um, reducing energy poverty um, locally. Um, and there may be some um, specific security um, benefits of encouraging more local energy production, um, which can substitute for um, potentially more risky um, uh, energy sources coming from overseas. So, uh, so I, I think um, localism is very much to be encouraged. And of course, it may be that you, in encouraging small local projects, you're also bringing through a new generation of people interested in energy, people who've cut their teeth in a small project who then go on to um, be managers of much bigger um, uh, green enterprises. Uh, and that's something that um, is, is a very good thing. But with hard-fought expenditure rounds, even those entrepreneurial green businesses will be feeling the impact of public sector cutbacks in the longer term. But these smaller, more local green business models may be a solution. Local wind power could well be less expensive than the large offshore farms. Dr Pollitt. It can't happen without any money at all. Um, but uh, as we know, the, the issue is often about shifting um, resources from very, very expensive large national projects to cheaper but still um, requiring subsidy uh, local projects. So I think within the, the, the overall reducing cost envelope of subsidy, um, it may be possible to reorientate our subsidy to the places where we can get the highest returns. And clearly some of the local projects where you're harnessing the, the, the goodwill and the, um, the, the, the commitment of local people to um, do, do things in their local community may be much cheaper to deliver than the large offshore wind parks which consume hundreds of millions of um, pounds a time of subsidy.
So we really are entering a new age in terms of the green technologies of localism, community is exciting. Um, I, I, I would like to think so. There are some good examples. Um, we've been looking at the, uh, the, the, the case study of Leicester uh, City Council recently and Leicester have, uh, have managed to combine their sort of green agenda with their, uh, their, their whole vision for the future of Leicester, their one Leicester vision. And there clearly is an opportunity at the local level to incorporate the green agenda into the whole future of um, the place that you're living in. And that would seem to have a lot of, of things going for it because it would overcome a lot of the uh, local... Uh, barriers to rolling out green technologies, to encouraging people to be more energy efficient, to switching people on to greener forms of transport. Um, that would seem to be something that's very much best done locally. Is it possible for enterprise to succeed in an economy that's deep in debt and that relies heavily on a service and public sector ethos to date? What changes in the business psyche will be needed to take on board the gauntlet thrown down by Cameron himself? Dr Vicarnum again. Certainly they need facilities, they need a legislation that is liberalising, they need banking systems that function. You know, you need a whole set of things around them and which bank is going to lend anybody any money right now uh, to survive month to month? They certainly need to understand cash and profit and there's so much knowledge required. They need customers as well, after all, you know, to, to go beyond uh, survival stage. Uh, what's the point of throwing people into that? But just taking the big society as a, as a vision, as a goal, maybe um, with the financial institutions the way they are and society being where it is, maybe we do need to look towards a society that is much more self-reliant and uh, self-serving. Uh, and the way it goes, it's got to be connected up with the global world. It has increased migrations. Um, you know, and, and it's not the day of the big business, maybe. Maybe it is time for smaller businesses. The relationship of social enterprise to the state will undoubtedly be redefined in the coming years of the coalition government. The gauntlet has been put down for all those citizen volunteers and new social enterprises to pick up. Time will tell if we, as social entrepreneurs in a big society, can rise to these challenges. Thank you.